Hi, welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I'm Ben Wager with my co-host Don Gibson, and we're very excited this episode to announce our new series of uh, films that we'll be looking at. This series, we are going to be focusing on Best Picture nominees, Academy Award Best Picture nominees that did not win the Best Picture. And since we ended at 1975 uh, last series, we're going to start with 1976. And so our movies that we selected actually had, uh, there's a lot of commonality and the energy at that time probably bared this out a little bit, but Don picked All the President's Men and I picked the film Network. And so we're going to start off by uh, letting Don tell us a little bit about the film All the President's Men. Well, All the President's Men is uh, essentially a what comes across as a sort of a documentation of the investigative reporting of Bob, Bob Woodward and Bernstein of the Watergate uh, controversy. Um, and uh, it stars uh, Robert Redford and um, Dustin Hoffman. And it's, you know, when you think about it, it's really just an investigative journalist in a story. You're thinking, how could that possibly be an effective film? But what they do is they make it seem almost like we're watching them unfold the story as it happens. So the opening of the film, that this film comes across as really authentic. So the opening of the film, we see this, you know, the, the really intense close-up of a of a typewriter page and the and the typewriter keys hitting it. And it's the beginning of like, you know, them doing figuring their story out. And then it goes right to our carval footage of uh, Nixon landing on the White House lawn and then showing up at Congress to accept the nomination or accept president. And, uh, and so from then it goes, cuts right to the guys that are in Watergate, um, smashing around the, the Watergate hotel, smashing around the democratic uh, election office, stealing stuff. And the, the, the interesting thing is the quality of the film looks exactly like the archival images. So it looks almost like we're looking at real footage of these guys doing this. And it's not, but the director, Alan Pakula, um, he also directed a film named uh, Clute, uh, starring Jane Fonda. And later on, he did uh, Sophie's Choice with uh, Meryl Streep. So he's got this sort of, he likes doing things with sort of an authentic feel to it. And um, so that feeling is, is established immediately in the opening. Um, the interesting thing about the genesis of this film, though, is that it's Robert Redford that created this whole um idea um it's and while this is a film that uh, we talked about three or four episodes ago the candidate while he was doing promotion for the candidate robert redford was fascinated by the the what was going on with the watergate and the post in, in investigation and uh, bernstein woodford woodward were writing a book about it called all the president's men and he bought the rights just on his own to see what was going to happen next uh, this is when Redford, Redford was just an actor, but he was also establishing a lot of power in the industry. And he went ahead and did this. And he's the guy that, you know, signed on various screenwriters and he had a lot of decision in who the actors were gonna be. Um, and it was really his project and he saw it through. Um, he actually wanted Bernstein to be part of the writing of the screenplay, but people realized that there was a version that he wrote with him and his wife, Nora Ephron, who wrote many screenplays later. And it made Bernstein look kind of like, uh, as in, in an article I read, like he's catsnip for women. 
he just made him so look like he was a player all the time. And uh, Redford didn't like the script and had it uh, adjusted a lot. The, the guy that he did have work later on it was Goldman, name, William Goldman. William Goldman. Who's, yeah. who's well, I mean, very established screenwriter. Yeah. I mean, very famous. And I had read actually something that you had talked about a little bit. Uh, I had read actually that uh, Redford at a very early stage after, within Woodward Bernstein investigations had actually contacted them and uh, gave them the suggestion that they ended up following on how to write the book, which interestingly enough, was this whole idea of making it like a detective story with an investigation. And so he had he had talked to them about before they even wrote the book about this idea of how he you know thought it would best play out. And so they they were inspired by his that conversation with him and wrote the book in that style based on, the discussions they had with Redford at a very early stage, as you said, when he was um, interested in that during the, um, the around the candidate time. You know, we, we actually talked in our first episode, we talked about how powerful Warren Beatty was when he made, you know, he was the actor and that's his, his main role in uh, Bonnie and Clyde. But the truth is he was really the, the vision and the driving force behind it. And Redford is definitely the vision and driving force uh, behind this as well. Um, and another thing is like, they really wanted to have an authentic, uh, feel to the whole film. They wanted to actually shoot in the Washington Post's uh, newsroom. They wouldn't allow it. And in the beginning, uh, Bradley, the the editor, executive editor, he was not not he was not happy about this film. But he realized they were going to go ahead whether they had him or not, and so he agreed to be involved. Um, but so they couldn't shoot in the Washington Post's offices. So what they did was they actually got when the Washington Post was cleaning out their office every night all the papers and things they did from, from using copy, they actually took their trash and they took it to the, they created a, 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 a exact replica of this office in Burbank. They bought the exact same desks that they had and they had them colored exactly the same way. They wanted the, and then uh, Hoffman and Redford sat in on many uh, news conferences. They wanted to see exactly how everything was done so they could duplicate it to make it seem like it was, you know, the, the real feeling of what it's like. Yeah, I mean, they, they took measurements of the actual newsrooms and, and I mean, they did a very, well, I mean, they did so well that the uh, production designer won the Oscar. Yeah, and it, it's completely authentic. And, you know, when you're watching it, and, and they also won the award for sound, best sound design, and the sound, like when you think of it, it's like just guys in a, in a, in a newspaper office, but the sounds of the constantly ringing telephones the typewriters that are always going, and there's scenes. There's a great scene when, he's in, uh, when uh, Bernstein's talking to Hoffman's talking to a woman in a cafe, and he's trying to find out about you know one of the people involved uh, from the uh, the committee to reelect Nixon, and there's these planes flying overhead, which are incredibly loud, and she's got to speak louder, and it makes us feel like we're almost straining to hear. And there's all these really interesting, and this, the soundtrack is really good. There's all, all this eerie music. There's a lot of great scenes in the parking garage where he has these interactions with this character, Deep Throat, who's their, his insider and what's really happening. And the parking garage is, you know, completely deserted and there's lots of ominous music and it's really darkly lit. Very spy um, kind of, very, very, they have it set up like a spy novel kind of meeting, you know? Yeah. And, and even, the way, even the way yeah. he meets that guy, you know, he has to put something out on his, uh, like a red flag in the, in the planner on his balcony and so you know there definitely has that uh, you know that intrigue espionage vibe to it another thing that i thought was uh, really interesting about the sound design was uh the phone calls 
those were so good the way they did the the, the emotion and the and the conveyance of of the communication between the actors and the phone on the phone and the way the phone was it was almost a uh, such a powerful part of the tools of the investigation that it, it became its you know its own character in the film almost the way the phone was so critical on uh, pulling information out of people yeah and we we feel like we're we're basically standing over the shoulder of him making these phone calls because you'll call somebody and you'll say do you want to comment on this and you get this sort of like immediate uh, instinctual response and then somebody will hang up and you're like okay that went bad and then a minute later he'll call someone else and then we'll go into somebody else's phone calls he's, he's trying to like say hey retract the statement and we're seeing all this sort of raw um, interaction and there's so much cutting back and forth like you know one of but would would will be on the phone with someone and then Bernstein will be on the phone with someone so you gotta get on this phone and it's really kind of hectic and confusing but and you know obviously they tighten things up to make it much more dramatic and intense than it probably really was um, but it certainly makes us like, oh my God, are they going to get this guy? Are they yeah. going to catch this guy? Is their story going to work? And that, that feeling of feeling like you're really in the, in the newsroom. And there's lots of great shots of them when they're you know, running from one end to the other to go to the executive to, to Bradley's office and the camera will run along with them and they'll go in the office and there's this really great tension um, they develop. A lot of frenetic energy in, in that newsroom. And the other thing that you mentioned uh, about the shooting was uh, you talked a lot about the interiors and the difference in the, uh, you know, making sure that uh, shot a lot of the scenes on, uh, you know, in actual areas and not just in, on a soundstage or something like that on location. And, you know, one of the things I read too was the lighting was intentionally darkened in the in, in murky in the areas where they, you know, espionage like activity was happening and that the newsroom was always well lit to show the nobility and transparency of, of that vehicle. And so, you know, there was a very intentional dynamic between the darky murkiness of, you know, the Watergate parts and, and the alleyways and the, and the parking garages and then the well lit newsroom that was the headquarters of truth. You know what I mean? So the, the lighting was very much intentionally um, set up to emphasize this difference. Yeah. And uh, so the guy, the cinematographer for this film is Gordon Willis. And he's a he's a really, really well known guy. He did a lot. Of, he did all of Pakula's films. And he also did um, uh, The Godfathers. And so the opening sequence in The Godfather, which is really well known, which is incredibly darkly lit, is this slow. It's a shot of, of uh, Marlon Brando, The Godfather. And he's very darkly lit. And the camera slowly pulls out and he's slowly revealed. And, and Gordon Willis is known as this guy that is how how little light can I put in a scene? Cause he loved that feeling of espionage or like, you know, not being able to see what, what's going on somewhere. And as you say, the contrast between those scenes in the, in the garage versus uh, the, the newsroom is uh, really effective in creating contrast between trying to find out the truth and then all the murky, you know, lies and espionage that are going on in the back background. Well, another thing I liked about this film was the, you know, obviously Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman are very dedicated actors, but the, they learned each other's lines because they wanted yeah. that chemistry and that thought process to be, you know, very realistic. So they, by knowing each other's lines, especially when they were kind of tag teaming these interviews at the doorsteps and things of that nature, it came across as if they were kind of reading each other's minds as, as they were exchanging the dialogue to solicit information from people being interviewed. You know, and that came across very well. I mean, it was a great tool that they that they utilized in, in doing that. And in terms of frenetic too, 
uh, Dustin Hoffman must smoke, you know, 75 cigarettes on screen in this. He's just, every scene he goes in, he's already got a cigarette going, or as soon as he arrives, he lights a cigarette and Robert Redford's character even comments, is like, is there any time you don't smoke? Um, and then yeah, we also in the have- elevator, in the elevator. Yeah, in the elevator. And, and, and in today's standards, like this is the 70s, so it's more acceptable, but he'll show up in someone's house to ask them, you know, questions about, you know, there's some, you know, smaller person that was working um, group to reelect uh, Nixon. And he'll show up in their house and he'll sit down and he'll start smoking and no one's offered him, you know, anything. He just smokes everywhere he goes. And the other smoking person is uh, Hal Holbrook. He's the, uh, he's Deep Throat and he's in the garage and it's kind of like film noir. He's this mysterious sort of, you know, dangerous character and he's- The source. The source. He's the source. We barely see him, but we see the glowing cigarette as he's, as he's saying, don't you understand where this goes? You got to follow the money and- you know, he tells a great story about G. Gordon Liddy, who's one of the uh, burglars. And, you know, he's, he's got a story about how uh, Laura, Liddy can hold his hand in a flame. And everyone says, what's the trick? And Liddy says that the trick is not minding. And it's just this great story. It's like, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, then he so disappears, really like there's a honking horn, and then he turns around and the guy's gone, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And as you talk about the, the develop of the espionage, there's, you know, so he'll turn to see, oh, there's a car driving by and, and Redford turns back and then Deep Throat's vanished. Yeah. And then there's just some echoing sounds and he runs and we see him running and then he turns around while we're thinking, oh my God, he's being pursued and no one's there. Yeah, there's a lot of paranoia that starts paranoia. happening. And, and yeah. as there should be, because, you know, I think at one point Deep Throat's like, you're being watched, you know, guard yeah, your lives are in danger. Yeah, your lives are in danger. You know, I mean, yeah. it got, it sounded like it got pretty intense, yeah. so. Yeah. And the other shots that I just love that are done in this are they, they the, the TVs are in the newsroom a lot. And so the TV will be in the background. It'll be some sort of, you know, a hearing happening or something about Nixon, some speech or someone. Real footage. In the White House. Sorry? It's all real footage, too. It's all real footage, yeah. And the, one of the closing shots is of, uh, of Nixon being sworn in as president. And it's on the TV. And in the background, we see Wood, Woodward and Bernstein just typing away at their story. And obviously the foreboding we know is that he's being sworn in, but this is not going to last, even though it looks like he's, you know, he's made it. And the irony, of course, of all this is that he won in a landslide um, and he didn't have to do all these things, probably. I mean, we don't know because they did undercut Muskie's campaign, um, but all these things they did, it just seems the paranoia of politics and how angry and dirty it can get. You're wondering, like, just follow your vision and maybe it'd be fine. And it's very interesting in today's context when you look at you know what we've lived through the last four years with Trump and how you know people in government can communicate when they're actually trying to disguise and not reveal the truth. Um, there's many interviews that you say that we see are archival, and they're all discounting the post and saying these guys are just politically attacking us because they're Democrats and they don't like us, and they discount everything they do. And of course, it turns out they uncover you know probably the biggest journalistic story of, of the century. Yeah, a lot of irony as we see the unraveling. And I'm sure even after uh, our current president is uh, out of office, we're going to see a lot of unraveling of things that might uh, require levels of investigation that uh, will bring up some of the some things that could be as serious as what happened at Watergate. Who knows? You know, I mean, yep. uh, see him out of office there, you know, things could really start poking although i don't know i mean there's so so much support for him 
it'll be interesting to see because there's definitely that juggling that pressure. And in, in, in the movie, they talk a little bit about this, the pressure of how far can we push this investigation versus are we going to lose readership? Is the paper going to be damaged by the outcome of this situation? You know, even today, we, we still see these types of things as a concern, I think, in media, not so much the mainstream, but certainly we've seen uh, media outlets be destroyed by bad reporting. And interestingly enough, one of the things with Trump that's undercut him was the interviews that he did with Bernstein. And it's a book that's been put out and, and you know, he doc, it's a full entire document, documented conversation that has undercut, you know, how Trump presents himself. And then, of course, Bernstein, but you said this, this and this about various things. And it's interesting that he's still in the game and he's still... Um, trying to get the truth or trying to get you yeah. know, people to at least be straight up. Yeah, no, it's great. I, uh, I actually showed this movie a couple of weeks ago to my seniors in my citizenship class about uh, we were studying presidential powers and I, and I showed this film and, you know, we watched it over a series of several classes and they had to do some synopsis and summaries and things. And then they had to look at how, you know, the, how presidents can abuse power and, you know, it was a, it still holds up. I mean, it's a, it's a great invest. The kids really connected. It took them a while because it's a, you know, they're, we, it's weaving a very complicated story. And so, uh, but once the kids started getting into it and I, you know, I had discussions with them after each class to kind of reflect on what happened in that segment of the film, you know, they started to get it and they were into it. So I, you know, I still think that even with younger people, the current president's track record, you know, they can see how this movie they can connect to what happened to Nixon because they can see how the public feels about our president now. It is a complicated storyline at, at times, but in, in the truth is you don't really have to understand all the names and all the connections. You just have to, have to understand that uh, they just keep following whatever they can follow and they keep pursuing it. And the fascinating thing about the story, the real story, is they had no idea what they were on. I mean, they were the only people pursuing it and, and, and they were young reporters. These guys were both like a year or two on the staff of the Post. And it was only because they were crazily hungry. They just wanted to find a story out. It's just kind of by chance because a lot of people w were telling them get off the story. And they had, they had no idea that Nixon was involved when they started the story. They had no idea that chief, chief of staff was involved, the White House. And, and it was only as these things unraveled did this thing um, come out. I mean, no one knew what the story was until the very end. And that's the interesting thing of the film. The film really stops of what, after they've done all the deep digging, when things start to become big and then everybody was picking it up and all the papers in the country, that's when the Post was like, they'd already won their battle because at the time the Post was thinking, should we still publish these stories? Because no one seems to care about it because it's just some burglary and it's just some checks here and there. They didn't understand what the story was until it fully unraveled. No, great movie, great movie, good yep. choice, very historical, and still something for people to watch to learn about what how how important the press is to our institutions of democracy. So, should we move on to our next movie? Definitely. All right. Well, our next movie, which I selected, is called Network, and uh, it's a film that was directed by uh, Sidney Lumet and uh, the screenwriter uh, uh, Patty Chayefsky. Uh, who uh, was a very powerful uh, figure in this film. I mean, the, in, in the making of this film, this screenwriter got 42%, production company got 42% of the gross on this or the net. So it was, he was a huge part of this uh, film. And, you know, one of the things that was completely inflexible was the dialogue. 
in, in the screenwriting. No, not a word could be changed under his contract. And so, you know, that was, and they had big names in this movie. I mean, it was obviously Faye Dunaway, Peter, Peter Finch, Finch, who, who yeah. wasn't, he was a British actor, uh, but- Australian. Uh, uh, was he Australian? I thought he was British. Australian. Oh, okay. And then William Holden, who was, was a very uh, well-established actor. So there was, there were some, big personalities in this film and there was a and secretly you know as we know from our many films we've picked with Faye Dunaway she's not an easy actress to work with um she has a reputation of being a very intense serious actor who really gets deep into the into her uh roles and wanting to understand her motivations and there was a secret agreement that uh Sidney Lumet had authorization from the producer to fire her if she got too difficult in this movie and that didn't happen but it was on the table if you know because of her reputation which doesn't seem uh like a very good uh and i don't know if that would have happened with a male actor of that somebody who had that kind of uh reputation if that would have been on the table but uh luckily they didn't fire her because she ended up winning the best actress uh award for this picture. In fact, I think of the four major awards, this uh, movie, they got three out of the four top, uh, the best supporting actor, uh, the best supporting actress went to uh, Beatrice Strait, who was the wife of William Holden. And incidentally, uh, as, as a record world record holder, because this was the shortest uh, amount of screen time ever given in regards, she was in, she was in the movie for less than five minutes and won the best supporting actress. Oscar, which is you know basically one big speech that she had, and then uh, Dunaway won Best Actress, and then Peter Finch actually died before the award show. I think he died ten weeks before the Oscars, but he um, won the Best Actor award, and his wife I think accepted it for him. So out of the you know the big four, they won. I think they won three of them. So uh, not bad for uh, a movie of this caliber but it was a very popular movie a lot of people saw this movie and the energy of the movie it's it's you know it's a very dark satire on uh, broadcast television which uh some people would argue at the time uh it was a film but now looking back you could have said this is a documentary of what's going to be the future of television because a lot of the things that they made fun of sadly became a reality in our uh broadcasting uh, situation as we speak now. I mean, there are the amount of um, just ruthless opportunistic behavior that we see in media now, uh, including broadcast channels, but especially cable and, and social media platforms and the internet, it's become so uh, competitive in its, in its need to profit that the, what they'll put on TV now has become just uh, a very low uh, mark low water mark for for what can get on. I mean, it's it's terrible, and we see this uh, made fun of at this time. But the reality of it is, is that it it kind of did predict the future. And yeah, I mean, especially the stuff about the economic ecumenical uh, people's front and how yeah, the they liberation they, army liberation. So th that's they were parodying basically what happened to Patty Hearst, right? And uh, same thing. And but the, what they would do, of course, they would they would. Uh, tape everything they were doing while they were kidnapping or, or robbing banks and then they would sell the footage to a network and the Faye Dunaway character was like this is amazing this footage is incredible we have to do anything we possibly can but of course what they're doing is they're taping capital crimes and 
yeah. you know, the morality or the ethical questions revolving around that, we're like, that's impossible. But as you say, today's standards is like, well, why not? I mean, the people want to see it. So there's a price on it. And so let's buy it and we'll sell it and we'll get a, get, a, get, get ratings on it. Yeah. And an interesting thing about that, that scene that you're talking about, the Patty Hearst character was actually uh, Mary Ann Gifford and she is Walter Cronkite's daughter. <laughs> the, the actress who played that character, which was kind of funny because Walter Conkright, you know, all of the major network broadcast anchormen were, were mentioned in this movie, uh, you know, as colleagues of the mythical uh, Howard Beale. So it was very interesting that how much they kind of wove this real life connection, even within the movie by using, you know, Walter Cronkite's daughter as, as, a, as, a, as an actress, as one of the characters. The there are some other interesting connections in this movie. Um, William Holden, who plays uh, the head of the news bureau for um, UBS, the mythical broadcasting uh, company that we follow as network, he uh, ends up having a um, romantic relationship with uh, Faye Dunaway's character. And there was a lot of concern about that in it before the movie was shot because William Holden and Faye Dunaway had been in, Holden had been in uh, Towering Inferno together. And it was known that William Holden hated working with Faye Dunaway in that movie um, and really, really loathed her in, in the process of making that movie. So there was a lot of concern about the chemistry because they were gonna have you know a romantic relationship. They were in bed together, they were, you know, going through the whole process but in the end they actually were very professional with each other and there was no problems in their shooting and um, they both spoke well of working with each other after the after the process so that was a good outcome of a situation that a lot of people were concerned about and that also gave him great energy when he gets to break up with her and rip her to shreds oh yeah that was a good scene where he kind of you know slaps reality around a little yeah. bit for her because you're going to uh, end up lonely and alone your entire life because you're a terrible person i'm sure he enjoyed those uh, and she was like you're a bad lay and you yeah. know and he's like i don't know why you think that bothers us that's not you know why is that your go-to when you fight with men why yeah. are women always saying that it's, you know you think that's going to hurt us you know yeah. and uh and so it was, it was interesting because it the dark side of both those characters uh, constantly, you know, him leaving his his uh, wife and that scene where she has that famous speech where it basically won the um, the supporting actress uh, for that scene. But that was a hard scene because he, you know, she just laid into him and he didn't, he didn't have any, he's like, yeah, you know, I probably love her. I have no, I have nothing to say that I can't defend this and I'm leaving you, you know? And it was just so, such a classic older man uh, you know, leaves wife for younger woman kind of thing, you know. Uh, but you could see that uh, Holden, you know, suffered through that, uh, the character, the process of him, you know, he realizing he had made a mistake and that, you know, he wanted to go back and give it another shot. It was a, a classic uh, subplot of, of these type of movies. And, and uh, but it was so well done that it, it was a very interesting experience. And the other thing I felt about this movie, and may, uh, maybe you can, I don't know if you ever saw a movie with uh, George Clooney where he plays the fixer of a law firm. I think it was called Michael, uh, I can't remember the last name, but it was Michael something. And um, a very famous, uh, is she Irish? The woman who, who uh, she's a, she has a- Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton, yeah. And, um, uh, and the woman who plays uh, 
the other lead, she's like the corporate lawyer getting stuck between a serious thing. Her name was, uh, it starts, she's Irish. She has red hair, Irish or English, very famous. Tilda, Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton, yeah. She plays the, that relationship in that movie, I felt Network kind of really influenced that movie because the way she had to make these tough decisions and being a strong woman and then eventually getting to the point where, well, why don't we just have him killed, you know? And and then Michael Clayton, we see that same kind of, you know, more in a satirical way. And this, you know, Mike, Michael Clayton is a much more serious movie than Network. Network has a very satirical kind of way of approaching the end. In Michael Clayton, she really does, you know, hire some hitmen and it's it's like a, a serious and he's like, what, what are you killing me for? I'm the fixer. You don't, you know, and it didn't work out. But in Network, you you see that there's this huge flamboyant television made for ratings assassination. And uh, it's just, you know, it gets out of the realm of reality and deep into the, the satirical nature of the film. But it was still a uh, when they're talking about the assassination in the executives' offices, and they're like, "Well, you know, we could have him killed," and one guy goes, "Well, I hope there's no recording happening in this room." Kind of like a Nixon-esque moment, you know, where you know, yeah. I hope you're not recording anything, and nobody says anything, and they just continue on with the conversation, and yeah. then they actually execute the plan. And uh, interesting enough, the people that they use, the uh, I think it was the Mao Zedong. Uh, revolutionary group, which is a, a black or African-American, um, kind of like a Black Panthers organization. Uh, they used those people who had their own television show following uh, the, the Howard Beale program. And they used those people and they had become such a capitalistic group. that It's like the television show had twisted them. And there were some scenes where they they're talking about uh, you know, their contract with their lawyers sitting in their little revolutionary house and they're arguing about distribution rights and, and using socialist and capitalistic, um, you know, slang, uh, you know, people are trying to put us down. I'm not giving up the distributed distribution rights. I'm not making any profit on this till syndication. <laughs> it's just like this kind of weird merging of their socialist beliefs with the, the negotiations with these hardcore capitalist network ex executives with all these lawyers in the room. And at one point, the head of the organization pulls out a gun and shoots it in the air to get everybody's attention. And it's just, just the irony of that whole, how the, they had been warped into this, you know, part of capitalism, even though their, their, their show represented this anti-capitalistic view, but they had turned into entrenched capitalists. It was very... Yeah, well, as Kay Dunaway says, you know, if you want your message spread, do you want it to do with pamphlets or do you want to have a top-rated TV show? But of course, as soon as you want a top-rated TV show, then you're dealing with all the capitalistic legalese that you're trapped in, which of course is the joke and the Ned Beatty character who owns everything. He's like, there is no, there is no individual, there's no nation, there's only corporations. Um, that's all we have. Yeah, it was, it was very, yeah, that Ned Beatty's character, you know, knowing that Howard Beale was basically straight up mentally ill, you know, yeah. went in there with the sale of, I'm going to be your, your, I'm the savior that you're going to sell now, you know, and he turned himself into this, he like, he just manipulated him in this kind of sales pitch that turned him into, um, you know, some kind of demigod. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the, the idea of Howard Beale being like a messiah or a prophet of some kind. And as you say, it's just clear He's mentally ill, he's got problems. In, and the idea of people following him goes back to Tommy in many ways, that people just want to find something to follow and a deaf, dumb, blind kid or a guy that's crazy on TV, people are willing 
to follow any sort of icon because we don't know what to do with our lives. We just need something to follow. Character that I really like that I found fascinating is, is that woman, Lauren Hobbs. She's the woman, she's kind of like Angela Davis, who was a, you know, a black revolutionary, or, you know, she was at advanced socialist ideas and, and you know, empowerment to, to black people. And so she was really interesting. And it's, I find it fascinating that a film from 76, you know, has such a strong, not only, black character but a female character and she's portrayed as like you're not going to screw her around and she's demanding she, she she'll get she believes very much in her her political beliefs but you no one's going to be able to take as you say take her distribution rights away from her and you're never going to manipulate her and she's got a couple of i'm surprised she wasn't nominated because i think she's a great character in this in this film and then of course faye dunaway that, that for me this is the big difference between network and and all the president's men is and and the, the the wife you have three very strong female leads in the or strong female characters in this in this film and all the president's men you basically have nobody there's a couple of women that show up but they're always supporting and their sexuality is is the most important in all the president's men they really could have had an interesting female character because the owner of the paper at the time was Catherine graham but they made a decision not to include her in any way even though she was involved in in, in allowing them to make some decisions but network like just said, we're gonna have very strong female characters in it. And it's driven by really strong female characters. Yeah, I think, um, and interesting enough that the way, you know, the a lot of the things that I thought about when I saw Faye Dunaway in that, in that role was one, she was just too beautiful to be that person in that role. Like if she had, you know, somebody with her beauty in that situation would have been in front of the camera you know, that she would have made it, and maybe that was a backstory that it didn't say, but, you know, her, her ability to be the talent would have been, I would have expected to have seen incorporated, like she knew how to be in front of the camera as well as behind the scenes, because I almost felt that that was a distraction in this role, you know, that she, she had that Faye Dunaway classic beauty, you know, I don't know if that was uh, addition to strengthening that character, because, you know, the women around her were extremely plain, you know, her assistants and, uh, and, the, and the other women that were working for her. One of them I noticed too is a, uh, was a famous, I think she just died recently, but she was the housekeeper in uh, Two and a Half Men. Conchata, oh, sorry, that was one of her assistants. That's who it was. Yeah. yeah. Conchata Farrell, I think her name is or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I didn't. You're, now you're pointing it out. I, I recognize her, but I didn't exactly know who she was, but that's exactly who she is. Yeah. yeah and, uh, and you know, she certainly, uh, she, she was a strong personality in that, in that movie as an assistant, you know, but uh, she certainly did not possess the dichotomy of beauty that you saw with Faye Dunaway was not in this yeah. person's role. And maybe at that time, because of the sexist nature of men, you know, you had to be beautiful to climb up in, on any ladder in that situation, whether in front of the camera or behind the camera, you know, it's something that probably we would have looked at. And when you talk about all the president's men, you know, there were no press, you know, it was media was dominant, newspaper men, you know, all the reporters who were women were, were, were reporting on women things, probably like, you know, fashion or other stuff. And it wasn't, you know, men, the serious news was done by men. But the interesting thing is the paper was owned by Catherine Graham. And so, you know, recently, what was like two years ago, they made the post um, and that Meryl Streep stars as Catherine Graham. And, you know, th that story is about the releasing of the Pentagon Papers, which is a prelude. I mean, that happened in 70, 71. And this story takes place in 72, 73. And so, and she, but she was involved in this. I mean, Bradley, the executive editor, 
we made a lot of decisions, but in the post you have Meryl Streep playing Graham and you have Hanks playing Bradley and they, you know, whatever. I think they, they tell a really good story in all presidents men, but they could have definitely included her in some way. Um, but they made a decision not to. It, I'm just saying it's interesting because they could have with a strong female character and they decided that's not what the story is about. Whereas network, it, it's, it is about, you know, uh, the character of, you know, losing his, you know, Howard Beale, you know, turning into a messianic kind of character, but they made a really clear, I guess Chayefsky made a really clear decision to make this a very strong female, as you said, beautiful uh, woman that is going to be like this ball busting, you know, person. Power hungry. Yeah. No one. Yeah. Power hungry. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, overall, I thought it was a very good movie. Uh, it's, I think it still holds up in a lot of ways, but it's, it's almost like a historical documentary as we, as I said at the beginning, because now, you know, you watch that film and you're just like, geez, you know, they're making fun of all this stuff, and but we're being slapped with the reality of the situation now every day. And one thing I'll say about this film, just like all the president's men, uh, you know, they're, they're ch challenging films. I mean, the, the vocabulary network is, you know, it's pretty complicated. I don't know if, if Trump will be so into it. Um, and it's, uh, and there's an awful lot of yelling. There's so many people yelling their speeches or just, their, their dialogue is just people yelling at each other it's a tiring film to watch yeah yeah i, I agree with you on that level uh, but you know one thing that the commonality of these two films have coming out on the on the same year is that you know there was a whole don't trust the man vibe you know that was yeah. a very big part of these films in the sense that we we see this uh this whole societal view of authority as now being something that we don't trust entirely that they're manipulating the masses for profit or for for you know other deeds, corrupt deeds, and these movies both reflected uh, that kind of uh, sentiment in in their message. All right, well, Don, I think we covered these pretty well. I I'm looking forward to um, our next selections for 1977. And do you have any final words for our uh, listener? Nope, just looking forward to the next year. All right. Well, thanks again for uh, coming on and listening to uh, Cinema Around the Corner with uh, myself and Don Gibson. And we look forward to our ne next episode where we explore the films of 1977.